So my name is Maitreya Bandhu and here I am at the London Buddhist Centre. I'm going to read you my poem, The Travellers from Orissa, which is from my second Blood Axe uh, collection called Yarn. It's about uh, the two first disciples of the Buddha. According to tradition, uh, two travellers met the Buddha just after his enlightenment and um, they became his first disciples. In fact, they gave him their, they gave the Buddha his first meal. Their names are Tupusa and Balika, and, and those names come down to us in history. They took the two jewels from the Buddha, the Buddha, and, uh, the Buddha refuge and the Dharma refuge, but no Sangha refuge because there was no Sangha at the time. So you can imagine that lots of people have been trying to find out what happened to Tupusa and Balika. They met the Buddha just after his enlightenment. Would they disappear from uh, literature after then? So I basically made up this story that tells their story. And it's spoken um, from the point of view of Balika, one of the two disciples. Yeah. So it's, it's a dramatic monologue. Um, anyway, but it might not feel very, very dramatic. See how you find it. It's about, it'll take about 18 minutes for me to read it. The Travellers from Orissa. Tapusa said the oxen stood stock still and wouldn't budge, although we slapped their haunches, dragged their stubborn necks. He said they stood and swung their heads and looked around themselves as if a tiger might be roaming. Tapusa said all the birds stopped singing and the day was still, but Tapusa's head was full of yarns. He'd spin a story time and time again. It got more fantastical each time he did, although he'd bridle if you dared to tell him. I'd long got used to all his talk, the ox, the birds, the unearthly light making us gape and our neck hairs bristle. Every time he'd add another sight, the four great kings arriving with a magic bowl, a canopy of jewels, a friendly snake wrapped round and round a prince. But it's true we stopped, and it's true the day was still. We left the boy with the cart and market grain, the oxen tethered up, their sandy hides spotted with light. The sun was going down. It was afternoon. It shone into the trees. I could see the forest edges even now, the light in narrow bands between the trunks, maluva creep creepers, and red cymbali flowers. We found a path. It was rough and hard to tread, with prickly bushes catching on our clothes and leaves high up like shields and warrior spears. We found a level clearing in the wood, a delightful spot, with kusha grass growing under trees and the rushing sound of water. Tapusa said that when we saw the master, I nearly ran, as if he'd been a ghost or the, or the spirit of the dead. But why should I? I'm not a fool. He was thin, I remember that, and dirty, like a street boy thick with mud. Tapusa jumped in with all the usual questions. What dhamma do you teach and what's your caste? He'd shake his head and sigh each time the master answered, but I knew he didn't understand. The master spoke 
in a funny way, with gaps between the words, as if he'd, as if he'd just been woken from a dream. Tapusa kept him asking foolish questions, so I shut my mouth and went to get some food. I brought the master barley gruel and madupinda. His smile, I shan't forget, was like gazing at the sea. The sun had set, but the evening sky was bright when we got back to the cart. The journey home was just the same as the journey out, or so I've come to think. Bumps and ridges, the farm boy's sullen face. One thing I do remember, don't ask why, was a heron standing at the edge of a scrubby pond. I'd been sleeping in my seat, and when I woke, my neck was stiff. I shifted up and looked. I don't know what it was about the bird. He seemed so old and sore and so intent on that small meal that he was fishing for. Karangi, my wife, was standing at the door when I got home with the boys around her skirts and the bullock rigged and ready for the fields. We married when we were young and got along much easier than most. She often laughed when Tapusa spoke, which, of course, he didn't like. He grew impatient with my quiet. He'd call round late at night when the boys were long in bed. One time he'd been with the village lads telling tales, all kinds of things, marvels and ghostly visitations, I don't know what. Well, he must have felt ashamed because he came and got me out of bed so we could talk. I wouldn't speak to him at first, but he looked so hurt. I told him all I remembered of the day, how we'd seen the master under the people tree, the way he looked and smiled, the journey home. I was surprised by what I had to say. Tapusa was quiet, and we stood there in the dark. One time I told Karangi she'd been pestering for days, so I talked about it straight, how I'd laughed and touched the master's arm, kissed his feet, then wept when it was time to leave. After that, I'd catch her looking at me strange, so I knew to keep it to myself. I thought it over in the fields, which was where I was happy most, standing behind the plough with birds riding on the bullock's back, the air riding, riding the water's edge and the air thick with midges. That's when it would all come back. Not often, and never when I tried to get it straight. Once when I was lifting up my youngest boy, and once when the sun was low behind the trees. When the feeling came, it hurt around my heart and made me shake and tremble. I'd, I'd have to stop. The boys would cluster round and start to cry, throwing down their sticks. Then whatever it, would, whatever it was would lift and I'd want to shout for joy. I'd clap the bullocks back, then give the boys a ride. Or I'd fold my hands and fall down in the dust. Tapusa started wearing homespun stained with clay 
He attracted a little following. They came to ask him what he thought and how the crops would fare and who would make a bride. He stopped talking to me about that time. He'd pretend he didn't see me when I passed. I kept my thinking to myself, but Karangi would complain and want to take it up, the rumours he had been spreading. I'd shake my head and she'd relent and go outside to work. Sometimes we'd do impersonation of his ways. His nodding head, how, he'd he how he held his finger up each time he spoke to emphasise each word. Tapusa said the master sent a deva to teach him dharma while he slept. He said he's heard a voice inside a tree or speaking from a rock. He'd stop and seem to listen. Then he got ill. Oh, ten years ago at least. And near the end his wife asked me to come. She was waiting at the door when I arrived. She asked about the boys, how grown up they were, and tall. The room inside was dark, and I could smell the Nishiganda flowers. Tapusa was on his back, all dressed in white, and someone had hung a chain of marigolds around his neck, as if he was already dead, and living with the gods of the thirty-three. We didn't speak but I knew what he would have said. Then Karangi died. She had not been herself for weeks. She kept clutching her side and screwing up her face, but when I asked her what was wrong, she'd shrug it off and tell me it was nothing. Then once I heard her shouting at the boys. The youngest had broken something, or knocked a dish of lentils on the ground. He was always clumsy. And when I came in, she was leaning on the door. I'd never heard her scream like that before. Next day, I met them running from the house, telling me to come home straight away. I found her in bed, already cold, and curled up on her side as if having pleasant dreams. Occasionally a merchant would turn up and tell a story, what the master said at such a place, the way he'd talk, how he'd treat a Brahmin's son. I'd go along and listen with the rest, but it didn't make much sense. When I tried to remember when we met, it, it was like it happened to someone else. It seemed so long ago. So when we heard the news that he was three days' walk away with a band of hangers-on, I nearly didn't go. But Magia, my youngest son, got so excited, he put my walking stick into my hand and almost pushed me out the door, despite my aches and troubles. We met all kinds of folks from local towns. I'd stop and tell the story once again, but Mirgia would complain and say we must keep going. I did my best. I went about as fast as I could manage. 
paddy fields and coconuts, trees and scrub are all I remember from the journey, except perhaps a kirka's raucous call, such lovely wings and such an awful cry. How good it was to be among the noise. I felt like I was 20 seasons younger, stalls laid out, women carrying pots, bullock carts and tethered buffalo. Hungry crows were waiting on the roofs to steal away a scrap and there were children playing games and getting under my feet. I would have stopped to ask about the price of Malujara, but Magia took me sternly by the elbow among the jostling crowd. When we got to the Abhavana among the banyan trees, we couldn't hear the things the master said for all the buzz of talk. Magia kept on telling them to shush, turning sharply round, pressing his finger to his lips while young men blocked my view. Eventually, we turned our steps back home, Magia dejected, straggling behind. We'd not got far beyond the hawker's cry, the smoke and, and cooking smells, when there he was, the master, walking a little way ahead with a motley crew of sadhus and disciples. I knew him by the way he moved, slow and even, like an elephant or tiger. Magia didn't notice him at first, but I said, Master! before I even knew I spoke. I'd never used the name before. He turned and said my name. My name? Barlika, he said. So soft, I felt ashamed. I wept so hard, I thought my ribs would break. He said, good then carried on his way. As a boy, Magia had always been the talkative one. He'd follow me around asking questions, then ask why each time I tried to make an answer. Karangi used to say, if you only put the effort you put into your tongue, into your chores we might get something done. Well, that day we walked in silence home, Magia looking sidelong with a question written on his face. I tried to talk of other things, some paddy fields we passed, a kutukatha starting up, hoopopo, but he saw what I was doing and wouldn't speak. I'd kept the secret feeling to myself ever since that day I'd met Karangi, knowing I'd not be understood and doubting if I would be now. But I was overawed meeting the master and weary from the road, so I opened up my heart, trusting to the gods. Everything was true about the place, I said. The forest grove, the food I went and fetched, but after we had eaten, and after Tapusa had gone through 
all his questions once again and hardly listened and had no more to say, the master said, I remember every word, I've kept them with me all this time. He said, listen, my friends, there is a thorn buried in the heart of man. And for this thorn, they suffer here and now and in the future. I have found that thorn and plucked it out. And for me, the mass of suffering is no more. Tapusa jumped in, saying, yes, but, yes, but. I could have struck him and quickly said his name. But the Lord, for so he seemed to me just then, looked at him with such a heart of love, I couldn't speak. And then a wonder came and troubled me and worked within my soul as if I'd rise and shout and stamp my feet. But then I saw Karangi's face, the boys, the village fields I've always known. How could I leave and walk the triple world with him? My heart was like a netted fish thrown up upon a bank and thrashing wildly. But the master, the happily attained, guide unsurpassed of men to be tamed, the blessed one, richly endowed, he seemed to search inside my heart and urge it forward. I didn't follow the Blessed One that day. I left with Tapusa, as I said, and walked back into my life and tried to take it up the way I'd always lived. Only Karangi knew that something deep inside had changed. And soon I found how little I could say. And soon I gave up trying, even with her, Tapusa hadn't understood. He'd turned the whole thing upside down and made it all about himself and how he stood and what he had to say. I'd kept a stubborn silence. And though I've loved my children, one and all, Magia best, perhaps, and though my life's been blessed, I won't complain. I knew, as I climbed inside the cart, the sky still bright above my head and half the journey done. I knew that day that I had betrayed my life. Now I'm old. I don't know how old. My mother was never clear about that sort of thing. She used to say, you're the same age as your nose, but just a few years older than your teeth. Well, I'm, I'm sure that I'm the oldest in the village. Nowadays, youngsters come to ask me questions or talk about their fears. I listen or say a word or two, then ask them not to worry. They mostly want to hear about the master, although they've heard it umpteen times before. I usually protest, but if they insist, or if they're young, I add the things Tapusa would have said. 
the snake, the four great kings, the crystal bowl of light. I like to watch their faces, how they gasp and put their hands up to their mouths and, and stare at me in wonder. I have to be careful, though. If I miss something out, they stop me and tell me I haven't got it right. Magia left that day we met the master. I had to let him, although it broke my heart. Now his wife looks after me. She's good and quiet and soon she'll bring me Yagu before I go to bed. The monsoon rains have started. Started early, drumming on the roof like a herd of angry goats or an army from the west. It's almost like I'm living in the sea. I might, I might be a darting shoal of fish. My mind seems full of roving eyes. At times like this, I think I hear Tapusa preaching Dharma to the village lads, or Karangi singing while she bathes the boys. I hear their squeals coming through the night. And sometimes... When I'm about to fall asleep, I hear the master calling out my name over and over. Barlika, Barlika, quietly between the drops. I know it's just my mind playing tricks, but I listen nonetheless.